Today we're going to study about God saving some new people and how some of the religious people who had been at the church longer didn't like it. In fact, they resented the change that God was bringing. And we're going to study about that in Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 3. So uh, I was going to get farther last week. I had more, but uh, we made it through verses 1 and 2, and I was out of time. So we wrapped up there. So today we're going to do, uh, hopefully, 3 through 11. And we're going to study a little bit in here. So I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 3, uh, and uh, we'll just continue with this. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So Paul and uh, Barnabas and some of this other crew, they're sent out by the church to go on this mission, to go and figure out some of these things, right? This big debate, this big fight that's being had. They're going to figure things out. So, so they're sent out by the church and they leave doing well. So Paul could have walked away shooting bullets at the people who were criticizing him, couldn't he? He could have walked away slamming and saying, I can't believe I'm even having to do this. He could have said so many things, but he didn't. He chose to walk with character and reflected Christ and just going and saying, let's go and pursue unity in Christ. And I think that gives us just this great example of even in the midst of difficult times, even in the midst of conflict and of, uh, of, of uh, change and, and things like that, that there is a good way to handle it and to walk in a way that looks like Jesus and still points others to Christ, even when there's big disagreements going on. So as they're going, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. They made the most of their journey. So they could have been like, all right, let's get this over with, right? Let's get down to Jerusalem. Let's have this fight. We're, we know we're going to win it. Let's just get, get it over with. But they didn't. They made some stops on the way. And as they went, they stopped to encourage churches. We have got to be doing this, making the most of our journeys. Everywhere God brings you is a place that he could do something great. But how often do we forget that, right? I think I'm walking into Walmart and think, man, this is the worst place on earth. What am I doing here? I hate it. There's too many people and they act like people and it's awful. What if I walked into Walmart thinking, man, what if God did something great right here? What if he wanted to show an incredible you know, love or, or generosity or if he, if he wanted to do something just because I'm, I'm around people? God kind of likes people, right? So what if we treated every place we go as a place that God could do something great? And as they went to these places, they brought great joy. They're sharing with all these churches, hey, God just saved a whole bunch of Gentiles. Actually, at this point in the church, the Gentiles probably outnumber the Jews. So this is like huge. <laughs> the world that had never been reached was suddenly being saved by the gospel of Christ. And they're telling all these churches, God's saving Gentiles, loads of them, thousands of them. And it brought all of these churches great joy. We should always celebrate when Christ saves people. Why would we ever let Satan stop us from celebrating what God's doing? For the record, I love what kids <laughs> so much because normally I'm like is that one of my kids is that, yeah and uh, that was my first thought was I bet that's uh, one of mine but it, it wasn't so uh, that makes me so happy I love families <laughs> okay so when they came to Jerusalem they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done 
So these new people are walking in, right? Some of these, Paul and Barnabas were not new, but a lot of the people that came with them would have been people that were saved along the way, along these journeys. And so these would have been some new people. The church is always welcome new people in. But churches, and I think this is just a, a general statement of churches uh, pretty much everywhere. Churches are notorious for saying that they want to grow, but ignoring or resenting the new people that God brings in. Has any, anybody ever been a new person at a church? Was that, has anybody ever had a bad experience being a new person at a church? Right? It's difficult, right? It's scary. It's people that all know each other. You don't know them. But what's, what's so hard is we can still participate in that same thing. So even though we've, some of us have been new people at churches that were not treated well or just ignored or not seen, we can still be the same ones that say somebody else will go say hi to that person. We've got to be so, we need to be a place where people feel welcomed immediately, loved immediately, wanted immediately. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, uh, circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so they come in, there's this big celebration, right? Uh, the, the, the apostles are there, the, the Paul and Barnabas are saying, hey, all this great stuff that's happening, they're, they're excited, they're welcoming. It's like, man, look at all that God's done. They're excited. This other group of people, immediately all they could do, they couldn't wait to criticize. They couldn't wait to bring up why these people shouldn't belong, why they shouldn't be able to be here. They're part, here they're called the party of the Pharisees. These are the ones that had the hardest time admitting their own sin. They couldn't imagine themselves as needing more than they had already done for themselves. And they self-righteously looked down on anyone who didn't do all the things they did. You don't follow the same rules as me. You don't talk like me. You don't dress like me. You don't look like me. So you're worse than me. So they said, this part of the Pharisees, they rose up, they stood up. They, 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 they cut off the celebration. They cut off the excitement, the let's, uh, let's praise Jesus for what he's doing. They rose up to cut that off. And they said, hey, it is necessary to circumcise them in, uh, uh, in order for them to keep the law of Moses. They're not in yet. The, Paul, Barnabas, they're saying they're in, they're not in. They didn't do what we told them to. Necessary is a word that means to be something which should be done is the result of compulsion. Whether internal, I'm internally uh, uh, compelled to do something, or externally, somebody else is trying to make me do something. So we're making them, we're saying it's necessary, we're compelling them, we're saying they have to do this. These Pharisees were placing a command on all, on all of these new believers. They must do something to complete their salvation, to really belong. If they wanna be a part of us, they're gonna to have to look like us. That's a dangerous path to walk. They said they have to do this because that's the only way they can keep the law of Moses. What a bunch of hypocrites. Who had ever kept all the law of Moses? One person, 
Jesus Christ. The best of everyone had failed multiple times, millions of times at the law of Moses, right? No one, not even these Pharisees had ever kept the whole law. And they have the audacity to step forward and say, wait a minute, they can't belong because they have to follow the law. Well, no, I'm not, but I'm trying. So they have to try like I have to because I'm miserable and they need to be miserable like me. Let's start reading verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So they separate off the whole church together. These apostles and elders, they go off to to talk and to, to work through this. These men led the first church together, the apostles and elders. The transition was uh, uh, to just elder leadership was gonna be after the death of the apostles. And they met together to consider. That means to take special notice of something with the implication of concerning one's self. So I'm gonna concern myself with something. These church leaders took time to be personally concerned with this issue. And the reason is, is because it's a primary level of doctrine. The question they're asking is, what is required for someone to be saved? What's required for someone to belong, to be a part of the church? What requirements are we going to put in place? This is a big deal. Let's keep reading. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So there's much debate. And that's, we studied this word last week, but this time it adds much to it. So a large amount of forceful expressions of differences of opinions without necessarily having the presumed goal of seeking a solution. So even with the apostles and the elders in their meeting, there's some debate and some, some, some fight here because there's struggle. This is change. Change is hard. So there's a big debate over what's going on. This fight continues. Emotions are still high. and They don't even necessarily have a goal of unity. They just want to fight where they're at. He says, uh, uh, Peter's uh, saying this, he says, it, You guys know this. In the early days, God made a choice. What was this choice in the early days? We see this uh, a few chapters ago in Acts. Chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. All right, so we read through this and I know I'm not quick whatsoever in working through a book of the Bible, but we're inside of, uh, you know, a year of working through Acts. There's about 12 to 15 years that have passed up to this point um, in Acts. So this is many years after the first um, Gentiles were saved. So this was many, many years, many years ago. And uh, he's saying, hey, remember the early days? Remember back a long time ago? This already happened. God made a choice. You see, it was God's choice to include Gentiles in his plan of salvation. 
And let's just take a moment to, to be thankful for that, right? Because uh, I think probably 100% of us in here would be included in the Gentile category, not uh, part of the nation of Israel by, uh, by birth. God desired to save the most broken, the farthest gone, the most blind, the worst of us. That is a beautiful thing. Because if I look and I think through my life, that's me. I was very blind. I was very lost. I was very broken and had no way to deserve the gift of grace that Christ could give. But he desired me before I ever desired him. So God made a choice that the Gentiles should hear and believe. His choice was to save them in the very same way that he saved anyone else through hearing the gospel and believing in Christ. They weren't given any extra burdens because they were worse. The gospel is a big enough obstacle. Why do we add more? Jesus said the way is narrow to him, right? The reason it's narrow and few choose it is because you have to admit that there is something wrong with you. And that's a hard thing to do. Anybody have a hard time admitting you're wrong? <laughs> Some of you guys are liars. Um, We have a natural, innate desire to be right, to be good, to be the ones correct. It's pretty selfish and prideful for the most part, right? And that's a hard thing to overcome when you're bringing somebody to the gospel. Because you go to somebody and you, your first question is, do you think you're good? And they're like, yeah, I'm good. And then your next answer is, no, you're not. You're a broken, lost sinner. And that can sometimes end the conversation right there, right? Because no one wants to hear that. The gospel is offensive. It is beautiful and it is true and it is an offer of salvation from that sin. But you have to first come to grips with who you are. We don't need to add any other obstacle because that's hard enough. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So God who knows the heart. I, I like this. I want to say I'm, I, I'm not good at Greek pronunciation, so I'm just going to do my best. Cardionostes. Cardionostes is the word knows the heart. What that would be a literal translation would be knower of hearts. This is, is like a title for God. God, the knower of hearts. It's a great thing because we don't know our hearts. I don't know anyone else's heart. Now, I can assume, I can make guesses, I can get some things right. I might spend enough time with you to be able to know some of your heart, but I'm not gonna know it fully, right? Sometimes I don't know my own heart. Anybody ever been confused about your own feelings, your own desires? Anybody, anybody ever said, why, why can't I not just say don't want that? Okay. Maybe some of you like just don't love cake like I do. Um, God does know the heart though. Jeremiah 17, nine through 10. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Anybody ever experienced that? Anybody's heart ever deceived you? Led you towards something that was not good for you? When we sit here and we base all of our decisions on what I feel, we can go to a very terrible place because sometimes I feel like things that are not good for me. Good thing is this passage doesn't hit end here. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So though I'm deceived by my heart, my heart can't deceive God. He is the knower of hearts. So he can look in and see even when I'm being deceived and he can do things in my heart to make things good even when I don't see what's going wrong. You know how he does that? Primary through, through his word, right? Where I test my heart against the word of God. And when I find that the word of God doesn't support what my heart, heart says, guess which one is wrong? My heart. And my heart's wrong a lot. So I have God that's he's saying, look, Colin, I'm walking this with you. Your heart's going to deceive you. Let me test it. Let me see it. Judge it against my word. Let me speak to you because your heart will deceive you. So Peter's sitting here saying, hey, this is God who's the knower of hearts. He has given them the Holy Spirit. God is our witness who testifies on our behalf about our salvation. What kind of witness is that? Wouldn't you like to have him when you're going to court? Oh yeah, the, the person coming to stand for me, God. He's gonna stand up and talk for me. He does this by giving us the Holy Spirit to indwell in us. He's saying, you are mine and I'm telling you in the world you're mine because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling and living in you. You are the temple of God by being a temple for the Holy Spirit. Think of the audacity of these self-righteous religious hypocrites. God is testifying to the salvation of these people and they're calling it into question. They're questioning God's credibility as a witness. Anybody think that's a safe thing to do? I would step back from that, right? Like lightning's coming. They're calling God a false witness. Peter continues, says he's given them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He's saying we are saved and changed in the same way that those bad people are saved and changed. God saves all in the same manner because we are all lost in the same manner and in need of a savior equally. There are no good people. But it's easy for us religious people to forget that we once were there, isn't it? It's easy to be thinking, man, I, why do they not look more like me? Why are they not doing what I'm doing? Why do they not know what I know? They need to get that together. Forgetting that, man, I was a broken, lost human that had no goodness in me and Christ still loved me even when I had no love for him. And at the beginning, there was lots of brokenness that came into my journey in faith. 
Did anybody uh, remarkably stop sinning when Christ saved you? Me either. Now, hopefully you're living in more victory now than you were before, but the fact is all of us had a, a long journey through this. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is the biggest point. Peter's saying, hey, you remember back years ago when the first Gentiles got saved? Jesus saved them, filled them with the Holy Spirit, and made no distinction between us and them. God does not place distinction between those that he has saved. So why do we? We're all adopted. So we, Galatians is an incredible book that, that expounds on this, but we're adopted into the family of God when we're saved by Jesus Christ, right? He calls us sons and heirs. It's a big deal. It's this incredible picture of being brought into his family. So we're adopted, even though none of us deserved it. But sometimes we'll have the fight, and we won't say this out loud, but what we're really thinking is, yeah, we're all adopted, but I'm more adopted than you are. Isn't that ludicrous? It makes me think, think of the Howards. And uh, I want to, you know, they've, they've adopted um, beautiful children, but they've, uh, they've had some questions before. Oh, I should bring up Tyler and Jay, too. They're, they are adopting. Uh, they love being the center of attention. Uh, they don't at all. Adoption is an incredible, beautiful thing. With Robbie and uh, Camille, some people will ask them, and, and they, they mean well, but the question will be, well, which kids are actually yours? It's a bad question. Don't ask that, just in case nobody knows that. Um, and, and usually the answer, well, they're all ours. Yeah, but which ones like are really yours? And I'm just going to quote this because Vody Bauckham had the best response to being asked that question. Uh, his response was, come and try to take one and you'll know which ones are mine. When you're adopted, you're in the family. You're in. You're a son. You're a daughter to our Father in heaven. And there's no one that's more belonging than anyone else. When we've had kids, I didn't, make, I didn't say, okay, Jude's 13 and Wren is two. Well, Wren, you belong now, but... <laughs> Give it a minute. You'll have to, Jude belongs more than you do. No, that's silly. The moment she's born, she's in the family. 100% part. There's no distinction there based on length of time or who's adopted or who's more adopted. There are no distinctions in God's family. Because God's cleansed their hearts. They were broken, dirty people with sin written all over their hearts. Again, I, I think all of us would agree on this. None of us would ever want our hearts exposed before people, right? It deceives us. I don't want anybody else to see what's been in my heart. Loads of sin and struggle. And God saw that heart in me and in these dirty Gentile people with the sin written all over it. And then he poured Christ's blood on their hearts, blotting out all of their sins 
and cleansing all of their dirtiness. That's the picture we get, right? On our hearts, it's written just all sin, 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 sin. And then Jesus' blood just washes it off. This is beautiful. So he's Peter saying, Jesus took their sin on the cross. If we're clean, they are too. Not by anything they've done, by faith. We are not saved by any other means. There is nothing we can do to earn or keep our salvation. That is the power of Jesus to do that in us. Let's read verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter brings out the big guns now. He's talking about their dads. So you're putting God to the test. Here's what they're doing. Peter's telling them, you didn't save these people. God did. How dare you question God's ability to save? If he can save you, he can save anyone. If he can save me, he can absolutely save anyone. But God says by placing a yoke on the neck of people. You see, the problem is, is that they're placing a second yoke. They already have the yoke of Christ, and Jesus' yoke is easy, right? We see this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Why are we laboring and heavy laden? Because we're trying to work for our ability to get to heaven, right? We're trying to work to be good enough. We're trying to earn our way into the status of being okay and find our purpose and being good enough. And it's never enough. So it's a burden we can't carry. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Just sit down and do nothing, right? No, take my yoke upon you. Now, what an interesting thing. He just told some people, hey, are you tired of doing all that work and carrying that heavy load? Okay, come to me and I'll give you rest. Now put this yoke, this thing that oxen, uh, put, you put on ox to, to have them pull something. Put my yoke on me and start uh, working some more. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your, so- your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Do you know what our yoke is and our burden is in Christ? Our yoke and our burden is just to have faith in him to let his Holy Spirit bring about change in our lives. We are set free to choose good things because we're no longer slaves to sin. And so the yoke of Christ is just, hey, believe in me as your savior. They were trying to place the burden of the law on these people who had been saved by grace. And then he says, all right, so you're trying to put the yoke of the law on these people? They're saved by grace. You're trying to put this yoke of the law on them? Brother, your dad couldn't keep the law. You can't keep the law. The law reveals sin in us. If you are going to earn any of your salvation, you better be able to earn all of it. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus 
just as they will. Saved through grace. We are not saved by our efforts or our works. We are not saved by having Christian parents. We are not saved by our attendance to church services. We are saved by the grace of God in sending his son to die for us on the cross. That's how we're saved. We can never muddy the gospel up with other things, saying, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you also have to have these things for that salvation to be complete. He says, we are saved through grace, just as they will be. This is how Christ will save anyone who will believe in him, including the worst of the worst of the worst. Will you guys bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I just have a couple of questions. The first one is the most important. Do you believe in Christ as your Savior? This is the grace of God that he offers this salvation to you. If you're trusting in anything else for salvation, that's not the gospel. It's not how good you are. It's not how much good you can do. It's not what you can offer him because you have nothing to offer but your broken self. And then Christ saves you through grace alone. If you've never asked him to save you, I beg you to do that today. Second of all, are you a source of the gospel for others? Where if they come to you, they see Christ emanating through your life. They're drawn to know more about him because of how you act, your character, your words, your attitudes. Or are you an obstacle to the gospel for others because of those same things? If you find yourself in the category of being an obstacle of the gospel in other people's lives because of choices you're making, words you're saying, attitudes you're having, I beg of you to confess that and repent of it today. Jesus, help us to, to remember this. God, we are so quick to add law all the time, to add things to what it means to, to, for somebody to be able to belong. They have to look a certain way or act a certain way or talk a certain way. We add this so much because we so quickly become self-righteous. God, forgive us of this. Forgive us for putting obstacles to the gospel in front of people, either by ignoring them or shaming them or looking down on them or just adding to the burden saying they have to do something to get to you. Lord, help us to be a church where as soon as someone shows up, they can immediately belong and feel like they have a people that care for them so that you can reveal yourself to them and save them. And then we can continue to do that over and over again. Christ, help us to see everywhere we go this week as a place where you have an opportunity to do something great and not just another place to be that we'd see everywhere we go as a mission and a place where the gospel must be on our lips. That this church can be a light on a hill for you. In your name I pray, amen. Please stand and respond however God leads you.